forever. Dog. Just between us. Hey. Just between us. Hey. Hello, I'm Allison Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and I've started wearing real pants again. Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and I'm hungry. So, we, Melissa has... Wait, are, you're not excited that I'm wearing real pants again? Are they real pants or are they stretchy on the top? Well, they're jeans. They're, they're actual jeans. But, yeah, they're still incredibly stretchy on the top. I get my pants so big. Like, oh, I'll yeah. I get them, like, two sizes bigger. Than, Me too. And then just wear a belt. Oh, I don't have to wear the belt, so maybe they're not that big, but <laughs> <laughs> I want my legs to be like free inside the legs of the pants. I don't mind it being tight on my leg. I like that. It's more that the, the waist has to give me enough give. So I went into these stores and I was like, what is your stretchiest jean? Now I have flies again. I haven't worn a pants with flies in like two years. So when I leave the bathroom, I have to like, I like, like, oh my God, I got to remember to check. <laughs> I like that that Gen Z has brought the trend of like big pants back. And so for me, the look can be, okay, there's two looks. Big shirt, which I have right now. Big shirt, small pants. Or small shirt, big pants. And that's it. Big shirt, big pants. That's okay. Small shirt, small pants. No, small shirt, small pant was like early 2000s until like 2015. And it's over. And I'm glad. (laughs) Um, our producer, Melissa, had two phones out recently, just now, two seconds ago. And I was like, two phones, that's a song. And Melissa said it was about drug dealing and a phone for li- a phone for drug dealing, a phone for life. And I thought it was a phone for like one for cheating on your wife and one for life. And it reminded me of yesterday. I tried to make an appointment at a motel. I tried to make a reservation at a motel for a music video shoot that Mal and I are doing. And so I called the motel and the woman picked up and I was like, hi, I'd like to make a reservation for December 18th. She said, no one's here. And I said, no one's here. Oh, like the motel will be closed on the 18th. And she said, no one's here. And I said, okay, so a different day because the 18th, the motel will be closed. And she was like, what's his name? And I said, oh, my, my name is Gabby for the reservation. And she was like, no one's here. And after a moment, I realized that she thought I was a wife calling to inquire if my husband was at the motel. And the best lie that she could come up with is no one is here. What? Like if I had said his name's Tom, right? She would like, she didn't even pretend to check the ledger. And she didn't even say like, no one by that name is here. She said, no one is at the motel. So on a Thursday afternoon, you're telling me that this motel, every room is empty. But weren't you, you had said the date of when you wanted to make the reservation? Yeah, I think she was so used to lying on behalf of men having affairs that she just said, no one is here. And then I said, no, 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 a reservation for the 18th. And she said, oh, we don't do reservations, just come by. And I was like, okay. And I hung up and Mal had been listening to my side of the conversation and was like, what just happened? And I was like, oh, it's a motel where like people absolutely like, it's an by the hour motel. So you either, you know, have an affair or you have a sex worker or you're there to do drugs or whatever. And this woman was just like, 
Like if you, if your job is to run a motel that, that operates that way and your job is like probably women call all the time to be like, where's my husband? The best lie you've come up with in all of that time is no one is here. Hard to argue with that. Before I even said a name, before I even, just no one. You're not even there? (laughs) That's incredible. And uh, this is just between (laughs) us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice. (laughs) Ridiculous games. And brutal honesty. Except for that woman fully lying. Yeah. And if you say, what's your name? And that, or what's his name? I say a name. You don't even bother to. Ch- so you know the names of every patron off the top of your well, head. You know that no one's there, so that <laughs> he, he could he couldn't possibly be there. <laughs> oh my god! Well, this week we're going to be asking Jackie Cation some tough questions about romance novels. So this is actually a little bit related. <laughs> and later we'll be talking all about family loyalty through the lens of the Cuomo brothers. <laughs> Oh, man, that family crashed and burned. Um, (laughs) But first, we have to answer a listener's question. So you know what that means. Pin it! International question! International question! International question! Jess, Canada! Ooh! True international, baby. (laughs) Here we go. Hi, Gabby and Allison. First of all, huge fan of the show. You two have been a massive part of my healing process, and I can't thank you enough. About nine months ago, I was spontaneously left by my fiance. What is that like? I was about to say, no experience with that on this couch. (laughs) For those new to the show, Allison has had a similar experience. Yes. Luckily, not as horrible as this one, but here we go. So actually, he spontaneously kicked me out of our house. It was pretty horrific. One day, we were driving to Home Depot to grab paint to redo the basement when we passed a dad playing lightsabers with his kid on their front lawn. My ex-fiance looked at them and said, I can't wait to do that with our kids. For the entire duration of our relationship, he was wonderful. My parents loved him. He was kind and good to me. About a week later, he told me I had to leave in the middle of the night on a Monday in the midst of the pandemic because he needed time and space to think. There was no argument before this. Neither of us had betrayed the other. We were happily living together with our dog in the middle of the pandemic, making homemade pasta together, skating on the pond out back, and redoing the basement. We rarely even argued. If he was starting to have second thoughts, he never let on. All of my friends and family live 45 to 50 kilometers away. So that night, I left with the dog and drove an hour to my friend's house. She greeted me at the door with tea and a hug, and to this day, I cry every time I think how grateful I am for that moment and friends like her. The next night, my ex-fiance called me back again in the middle of the night around 11 p.m. When I got home, he told me I was a terrible, manipulative person and that I should take our wonderful, perfect angel rescue dog with me because he didn't want anything to do with me or the relationship anymore. He had thrown all of my things in boxes and garbage bags and left them in the front hall. He told me I had to take them all and that I wasn't welcome back, that my family wouldn't ever be welcome back. Weird flex, but okay. All of this was completely unprovoked. I know I'm not a perfect person or partner, but I also know I never did anything to deserve that. I don't even know what someone would have to do to me to make me want to do that to them. It was an incredibly traumatic experience for me. So it's now been about nine months and I feel relatively healed. I've started dating again and I've met some really lovely people. But here's the problem. Every time I meet someone really great, I start to get a weird, uneasy feeling. 
My friends and family keep telling me to trust my gut, but if I do, I will literally leave every eligible man I meet. I don't get this feeling with men who are clearly not the one and who are looking for something more casual. It only happens with the ones who I really click with and who let me know that they're looking for something more serious and committed, which I want too. It's like they start to look too good to be true and I convince myself that they must just be sussing me out to see if I meet their victim profile. I want to trust my gut if a man starts to make me feel uncomfortable, but these men are doing absolutely nothing to make me feel this way. One guy is a tradesman with his own business who takes his vacation time to go on trips to remote communities to help train people in trades that will bring revenue to their communities and eliminate the need for external tradesmen to be brought in for jobs. He's wonderful and has a super sweet dog and is always respectful and kind. I logically know that he is a good person, but my gut is saying not to trust him. How do I find a balance between trusting my gut and reminding myself that I'm still healing from trauma? As a young woman getting to know new men, I don't want to ignore my instincts, but I also know that they might not be the most accurate with what they're telling me. Anyways, thank you for reading up to this point for everything you two do. Your podcast really helped me through that truly icky time in my life, and I am so grateful to have found your content on the internet. It made me feel so much less alone in what I was going through. Love you both. Jess from Canada. Aww. And then um, Jess sent a picture of their dog, Butters. <laughs> <laughs> So this is obviously such a tricky thing. It is this thing where you're like, fool me once. Okay, but if I get fooled again, then I'm the problem, right? It's this feeling that's not true, but it is this sense of like, well, okay, I could maybe toss up what happened to me as like a fluke. But like, if if I go through another, you know, bad breakup, if I get left again, then like, uh, then like, what is the common denominator? Oh, God, it's me, right? At least like, I kind of feel that on some level. Okay, I don't think that's false, but... No, I'm not saying it's true. Okay. I'm just saying, like, that's... Abs- you know, there. I understand that fear of, like, am I, am I picking wrong? Mm. But I think what you have to remember is your fiancé fooled everybody. It's mm. not like your parents were like, I don't know about this guy, or your friends were like, mm, I'm not sure, and you were like, fuck all of you, I'm going for it. Right? Like, obviously, this guy had some sort of break or was going through his own crisis that resulted in him behaving in an incredibly extreme and cruel way. But like your ticker wasn't off. Like there wasn't signs that he was someone not to be trusted. And so what's really difficult and what's really hard is you just have to take the risk again. Mm. (laughs) Like there is no way for me to say to you that this wonderful guy who, you know, donates his free time to help communities and who is lovely and has a great dog won't hurt you like I can't make you that promise you just have to decide am I willing to take this risk like am I willing to go after what I want keep striving for the life that I want with the possibility that it might not end up okay and I think the answer is yes I mean the answer is yes for me and the thing is is like you also have to give yourself the grace of like okay, if something terrible happens to me again, it's not my fault, Mm -hmm, (laughs) you know? mm -hmm. Like, you, you know, like, you only have so much information about people. At a certain point, you kind of just have to, like, take that risk. And the reason why these feelings are popping up only for people where there's a real potential is, like, textbook. You don't get worried about people who can't have the ability to hurt you. You don't like if it's someone is clearly not meant to be in a long term relationship with you. If someone is just kind of a fuck buddy, like, of course, you're not going to feel that anxiety because you're not putting yourself in a in a risky situation. 
So it makes total sense to me that your anxiety is only happening with people who are relationship potential. Mm -hmm. You you can't protect yourself. You can do certain things to protect yourself, right? Like you can pay attention to red flags. You can have these conversations with your partner being like, I have this. And this is a conversation I've had with John a lot where I'm like, obviously, I can't make you say that you will never leave me. Mm -hmm. But you have to not leave me that way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Do you know where Mm -hmm. we've had conversations where he's like, if this doesn't work out, it will not be out of nowhere. Yeah. Like I'll (laughs) bring up, I'll bring up what I'm feeling over time as I'm feeling feeling it. Right. Yes. Um, I can't promise that like this will be forever, but I can promise that it will not be the same trajectory as the trauma that you've already experienced. Right. Right. Because you're honest and saying like this really like this really affected me. You know, I don't want you to do anything you're not ready for because I don't want to go through that again. So like, just keep in mind my experience as a human when you are doing your experience as a human. Context, context for what everybody has gone through. It's irrelevant to diagnose this person, but just as a person with bipolar disorder, Allison mentioned some sort of mental health break seems likely in terms of impulsive decision making and personality twisting. So, you know, on top of everything else, like not your fault, definitely not your fault. You're handling this extremely well in terms of having perspective, in terms of self-doubt, in terms of thinking like, what could I have done differently? What could I have done better? Like you're not saying anything like that. So it seems like at the nine month mark, you're very self-aware and very attuned to what you did right and wrong in the relationship. Like Allison said, your red flags can't ping if the person is not giving any red flags. If the person is saying, I I can't wait to play with our kids. Let's get paint for the bathroom. Like, you know what I mean? Like that is all a universal indicator of a promise of a future. Like, it's not like you were dating some someone like who was like, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't see a commitment. And you were like, no, we're committed. So I think it's hard because I think sometimes your gut instinct is twisted. Like you're saying, oh, my, my instincts and my, you know, but like, if you are dealing with something that might be complex PTSD, to be honest, the way that you look out for yourself might be like on the fritz, you know? I wouldn't advise you to trust your gut. I would advise you to like trust your brain and your heart. I would be like, okay, look at two things. One, what is this person telling me? And do I have reason to believe them? Like, have they been clear to their word up until now? Have I met people in their life? That's a huge Yes, right? Huge. You have to make sure that you understand your potential partner's world. And you have to see, do they have friends? Have they had friends for multiple years? Do they have either a relationship with their family or a relationship with other people that is familial? Am I allowed to enter their life in that way? What is their relationship history? Like you can do, you can do your digging that needs to be done, right? And so that's like the brain part. That's like the, okay, I have this evidence. This evidence is, is telling me that this is a responsible pick for me to have a relationship with. And then you have the hard part where you're like, do I like them? (laughs) Like, Uh am I in love with them? Am I attracted to them? Do I enjoy who I am when I'm around them? And then you kind of just, I would think, 
ignore your gut because your gut, right. your gut is freaking out right. because of what just happened to you. Right. So instead I would try in, to just really look at like, what is the information that I have? Can I trust this information? And then how do I feel about this person? And how do I feel with this person? And then the rest is just a leap of faith. And all you can do is ask yourself, am I ready to make that leap of faith? Mm-hmm. You know, because you might not be ready to yet or you might be ready to, mm-hmm. but you're going to experience intense discomfort in your next relationship. That is just a given. You're going to have abandonment issues. You're going to be afraid that they they're going to leave. Mm-hmm. And then it's it's working through that and also being like the worst thing already happened to me and I survived it. Mm-hmm. My fiance threw me out of my own house, was incredibly cruel, abandoned me. And I'm okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I think a lot of times we look at these bad experiences as like, oh my God, I hope this doesn't happen again, obviously. But there's also a sense of like, wow, I'm so much stronger than I than I thought. And my worst fear has already been realized. And so why would I stop striving for what I want because of something that already happened and that I already dealt with? Mm hmm right? Like keep going. You already put in this hard work. You already got through the hard part. Now, like pursue love, continue the life that you want. And, you know, terrible things happen all the time. We can't prevent them, but that fear shouldn't prevent us from continuing to live. Yeah, absolutely. And that per this new person is not the old person. Yeah. It's hard because you, th- you start to get like deja vu where you kind of, when this person is kind to you, you like flash back and you're like, but the other person was kind and it was a lie. But like, also, maybe this person wasn't lying the whole time. You know, maybe they it wasn't that conscious. And I think like you can be direct by saying, I don't want you to say these effusive things about me if you don't really mean them. I don't know. Sometimes people love bomb up top or get into this honeymoon phase. And like, maybe that's a little triggering for you that kind of like over the top stuff I just think you're gonna have to have probably harder like really intense conversations yeah. than maybe you would have than you would have to have if you hadn't had this yeah experience. more direct conversations more direct lines of questioning but that's a great way to gather information about your new partners like yeah. how do they handle that my first FaceTime with John I cried right <laughs> and right like he was fine with that you know like I've said a million times Our relationship could never have happened if he didn't let me process what had happened to me in real time with him. Yes, exactly. And so that's another real way is like, how did they react to what happened to you? Mm -hmm. How do they hold space for you? Or are they like, that's in the past. Let's move on. You know, it's Mm -hmm. not in the past. It's still something you're actively processing. Right. And so that that's a great way to gather information. But yeah, I mean, why would you trust your gut? You should trust your heart and your head. (laughs) I think Allison's right in terms of evidence gathering too. like, what do their friends say? What do their family say? What is their history? I'm just thinking about the the current bachelorette thing. And like, like, if you're looking for something serious, if you're getting the sense that like, you're not super welcomed into his circle or you're getting the sense that like, oh, that his friends are like, oh, he doesn't really commit or whatever. I don't know. Like, I think you could even like keep a evidence list on your computer or something or like an evidence list in your mind or something. That's like, I wouldn't call it evidence, but you know what I mean? Like, just like what makes you feel secure about this person? Yeah. But you also at a certain point, you have to decide if you're willing to let go. Like, I think you can do your due diligence and you can and then like, let go. And then you say, okay, And then if this person turns out 
again to not be the person you thought they were, then that's just shitty luck. It's yeah, just that's like, life. That's just like getting struck by lightning twice and nobody blames people who got struck by lightning twice. Yeah, that's just life. I mean, you you can't control other people's behavior. So, I mean, me and Allison have both been through many breakups. It's just like until you find the person, that's that's what happens. <laughs> breakups are inevitable. Instead of being like, oh, my God, if this happens to me again, I'm so stupid or I something Failed. is wrong with me. Yeah. Being like something horrible happened and I was brave enough to try again. And I learned. I'm learning. But yeah, but like I think the learning because then what if it happens again? You're like well, learning I about yourself. But I'm just learning saying like you're, this is like a show of real bravery and strength mm-hmm. to put yourself out there again mm-hmm. and looking at it through that way versus like just focusing on, oh, God, I hope I don't quote unquote mess up. At a certain point, we have to we have to believe the things people are telling us or we'll never feel peace or calm. Right. I'm appreciative of you sharing your story with us. I'm also just like so freaking proud of you that you're putting yourself back out there. And to think that doing that would be painless or easy or straightforward, it's not going to be. Yeah. It's going to be a journey. There's going to be highs. There's going to be lows. There's going to be moments that are are triggering and just making sure that whoever you're on this journey with is understanding of that and that you don't feel like that's something you have to go through alone that you can bring up those things with whoever it is you're dating is huge I think yeah at a certain point you're gonna have to just yeah you're just gonna have to be like okay this person is telling me the truth but it's only been nine months so I think like based on your email you're doing great (laughs) like really yeah and if you realize hey I'm not ready to take that risk yet then you're not ready maybe Mm -hmm. you'll be ready in a few months or maybe what's hard is you're like I feel ready to take the risk but I feel discomfort it's like yeah of course risk right involve discomfort exactly (laughs) so please keep us updated if you want to submit your international question, send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com that's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com Stick around after the break. We'll be talking to Jackie Cation all about romance novels. Ooh. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment known to all of podcasting. Tough questions. This week on the show, we have comedian Jackie Cation. Hello. Hello, I feel welcome. How are you? Oh, perfect. <laughs> Longtime fan, first time caller. <laughs> uh, also, same, same. Yeah, this is awesome. Good to see you guys. This is great. I'm so excited because one of our favorite things about this show is to get to talk about like different pe- things people are experts in. And while we like love that your comedy career and everything, you are also a romance novel fiend, right? Is that appropriate to say? <laughs> right. I love the idea that I'm an expert on this. Uh, I am, uh, let us lower the bar. Let us lower the stakes. I am neither a fiend nor an expert, but I am an enthusiast in the way that the world is on fire. And I can only recommend a romance novel if it's something you might enjoy. Other people enjoy sports. Other people, uh, you know, have taken up uh, drugs, alcohol. (laughs) (laughs) Right? It's uh, so probably in the last six years I've read, I've probably spent five grand on romance novels. That's a lot of money. I know it at eight bucks a pop. 
That's amazing. It's a great deal of money. But, you know, they have to make a living, too, the people who write the romance novels. And they, uh, and you got to write, like, two or three a year if you want to make any sort of even a kind of a crummy living. So, yeah, they got to churn them out. Yeah, I mean, that's what's so interesting to me about this industry is, like, it's a billion-dollar industry, right? Like, Mm-hmm. It is this huge like cash cow, and then like nobody outside of the fan base takes it seriously, or like even often thinks about it. Right, right. It's literally it's been mocked so openly. It used to be that way with science fiction. I read a lot of science fiction too, and I used to read westerns. I mean, it turns out I will read a book that has been written for cash <laughs> anytime since junior high. <laughs> I'm like, all right, uh, did you write this in about three months? Yeah, yeah, then I'm in. And, uh, mercenaries in, in, in Africa, Westerns, all of Louis L'Amour's work, sure. <laughs> so, What would you define a, a romance novel as? That's interesting. You know, uh, there is a brick-and-mortar romance novel store here in Los Angeles called The Ripped Bodice. Mm-hmm. I've been and, there. Uh, oh, I have to go. That sounds amazing. They do a comedy show there. They do. Yeah, I've done stand-up there. And so it's sort of like stand-up. It's sort of like porn. It's sort of like alcoholism. If you claim that that's what you are, you get to be it. <laughs> like a romance novel, the ones that I read specifically, and I've told this, it's Bamford, Maria Bamford, Thought it was so funny that I read romance novels. This is probably like seven or eight years ago. And she interviewed me on my own program about (laughs) romance novels. She was like, let's talk about your dorkdoms. Because she had been on like three times and she was bored. (laughs) And (laughs) so, but what it inspired was it inspired me to write material about romance novels. It inspired me to read some nonfiction about the history of romance novels. And it also kind of pulled me out of the closet about them, you know, Mm -hmm. where you're just like, yeah, it's no different than your crazy porn addiction, except for that it's less somehow acceptable to read romance novels. The ones that I read are historical romance novels. The history is hit and miss. (laughs) Well, because think about how quickly these things have to be researched and they all end well. Mm-hmm. And some of them have literally pages of sexy times going at going at it. Mm-hmm. A lot of a lot of touching, a lot of engorged uh, items, right? Uh, <laughs> body parts that are all lit up. But they can be they can be anything, right? There are like my great my great aunt loves western modern western romance novels. I like romance novels that are set in in England around <laughs> 19 1815 that's so specific though I've run out of them it's enormously specific and it has it bled off like I'm I'm sort of out of them yeah so I'm uh I'm in the 1870s right now oh man uh, and then there are some that are set in like the uh what was it Knickerbocker time? I don't know what it was called, but it was New York City in the in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Yes, Knickerbocker times. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And it's interesting because they are. And I tell this story. There was a oh, God. I wish I could remember the name of the author or the name of this book, but it was essentially a history of romance novels, and it might have been called like Bosoms and Bedtimes or whatever. Like like ever like just owning how how kind of goofy they could be, right? And uh, But if you think about it, 
So can science fiction. Have you ever read any Robert Heinlein? Right. Jesus H. Christ. <laughs> anyway, get some help. Anyway, so um, that guy's dead. Okay, so the... Um, <laughs> And I genuinely like Stranger in a Strange Land. The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. I like all these. I, I will literally read almost anything except horror because, quite honestly, it scares me. Yeah. Yeah. And I won't read Sad Sack Oprah Books of the Month, mm-hmm. Slice of Life stuff. I don't like them because I'm like, no, I'm already living that. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And books are an escape. Yeah. Yeah. I would like to check out. Give me a minute. Okay. So here's the here's the crazy thing about historical romance novels. The woman who wrote this book, she went to like Wesley or some fancy, you know, lady college, Ivy League lady college in the 80s or 90s. And she came home and was talking to her richy rich mom. And her mom was like, have you decided what to study? And she said, yes, I'm going to study women's literature. And her mom goes, are you going to read any romance novels? And her daughter said, our author said, those Fabio books? Oh. And her mother said something that I thought was epic. Her mom goes, oh, so you're not going to read the read the books that historically have been written by women for women about women. Interesting. Mm. Interesting. Okay. And then she said to her mom, fine, give me a syllabus. And then her mom gave her a syllabus. Like I started reading them in junior high and they were extra dumb. They were super dumb in the late 70s. A lot of rape fantasies. And that's what happens in the romance novels a lot in the 60s and 70s. Is you fall in love with your rapist, you marry him, and then he turns out he's a good guy. But uh, it turns out he also has complete power over you. Uh, Anyway, so it's all very disappointing. But the other side of that, and they also still exist, but they're, and it's because it's gotten super niche right? Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's like podcasting in the way that, it can be for 11,000 people. Right, mm-hmm. right, right. And still make a profit. And still make a living, right? And Or at least a profit. And so Barbara Cartland wrote these ridiculous, they're vaguely religious, a lot of longing looks, and then the last page, they're at the altar, and they might get to peck in the, they might get to kiss on the lips. And this was in junior high. And so I read all of those, and I was like, ah, these are exhausting. And then I turned to Harlequin romances, mm-hmm. which were a lot of the same. They were kind of the rape fantasies and the married thing. And then Harlequin romance put something out in my senior high years. And they started publishing something called Second Chance of Love. And people could get laid because they were either divorcees or widows. Ooh. Oh. And, and they didn't have to sweat the whole like wedding night virginity. Well, this is uncomfortable. Get it together. Right. These are experienced lovers. Yes. And the first time you have sex, it's always weird. I don't know how it is for men, but for women, you're just like, well, that was weird, but I kind of liked it. Let's do it again. (laughs) And I'm also supposed to like it. So let's try it again until I figure out what it is I'm supposed to be liking. Were these still being written by women, though? Were these all being written by women? You can't tell, right? I think that some men were writing them, and I think that a lot of men were reading them. One of the interesting other things that was in that nonfiction book was the way that romance novels are purchased. Mm. Because in the 50s and 60s, I think Harlequin was the first one to go sort of mass market on it. There were comic book romance novels Mm -hmm. in the 20s and 30s and 40s. And those were all like Nancy Drew kind of, you know, everybody's wearing pumps and you fall in love. And it's, you know, it's sort of like a dating. It was dumb. But... (laughs) 
they were something for someone, right? Mm -hmm. And women got to make choices in them and Mm -hmm. women got to be people. But in the 60s, I think the Harlequin Romance Company started and they started selling them in grocery stores. Oh, interesting. In like the card aisle. Yeah. You still see them right there. And it's because women were given a grocery budget by their husbands. They didn't have, a lot of them didn't have jobs. Right. And so they could hide their book purchases in their grocery budget. That's oh, brilliant. I love that. Trippy. It's such a strange genre because like in some ways it's incredibly empowering, but in other ways it's, it's backwards. And have you seen like in more recent books, is there more of a feminist angle and lens to them? Yes. And even the rape ones were empowering. Because the thing is, is if you think about it, women in television and movies and all this stuff and books never just got to be people, Mm, right? mm -hmm. Yeah. And even if you fell in love with a millionaire on the outback in Australia and he was kind of grumpy and pushy, (laughs) you ended up having some power over him. Because he wanted your puss. And uh, so it was like this ridiculous. And it's and so if it was only that, right? Like I remember in junior high, I didn't know I had no social skills in general. And then specifically with young men that I thought were handsome that I wanted to get with. And so I'm reading a romance novel going, okay, well. And sometimes the messages are terrible. I mean, but this is true, too, of sort of shitty movies, right? Mm-hmm. I have an, a not well enough researched opinion about B-movies that are the sort of the more st- standardized the movie, the more there's like a B-plot that is sociopolitical. Mm-hmm. And the examples I have are like Footloose, yeah. which is a huge hit. But the message of Footloose is keep censorship is bad. Mm-hmm. That's the message of Footloose. Dirty Dancing, also a huge hit, but the message of that is keep abortion legal. Mm-hmm. And Blue Crush, so it could come from either side. I don't know if you ever saw the surfing movie Blue of Crush. Course. Of course, definitely. Absolutely. <laughs> the message of that was true happiness is found through corporate sponsorship. <laughs> and, uh, I'm, I'm not even kidding. Like, if you watch it, you're like, oh, okay, well, the happy ending. Congratulations. Yeah. (laughs) That's wild. I mean, so do you think it affected you? Because I, you know, I think a lot of these, like growing up, even with John Hughes movies, let's say, that is very, you have to get a boyfriend and, you know, pick the guy, don't pick the best friend and the best friend is goofy and like all this. So like, there's a lot of, even with Breakfast Club, revisiting Breakfast Club recently, it's like the Bender character is basically sexually harassing Molly Ringwald for the entire movie and then she gets with him. Like, do you feel oh, like yeah. reading this stuff in middle school and high school like affected the way that you viewed relationships? Completely. I mean, the thing is, is it creates acceptance, right? Whatever TV or movies or books that you're reading, comparably like your family that you're raised up in, you think that that's normal. Mm-hmm. It's presented to you as the norm. So the good thing about a lot of the romance novels is like I did a dork forest with Jen Kirkman mm-hmm. and about Hallmark car, uh, movies, those mm-hmm. Christmas and She said one of her favorite things about those movies is that it's always some incredibly successful businesswoman 
who goes to her the small town of her childhood and the guy who owns the Christmas tree farm now <laughs> went to high school with him and they end up getting together. And at no time, like there's no expectation that he has kids or she has kids. They just sort of sweetly fall in love. And then they have to figure out, are they going to, you know, spend part of the time in the big city where her big city job is, or is she going to get to work remotely? (laughs) And and so these are the dumbest movies on the planet, hugely popular because the role, the role modeling of that is real, right? So all of these women who were in these books were to some extent successful Mm -hmm. in their own right, you know, and powerful and smart and they weren't doormats. Some of them fell for dumb, horrible men, but people fall for dumb, horrible people, right? Mm-hmm. Like you end up with somebody, like I have at least two or three male comic friends who I'm like, your girlfriend is terrifying. <laughs> she is a monster. And you're like, I think you're a nice enough, why are you with that? And so it happens with men too, obviously. And so the books themselves they were ways to talk about sexism. They were ways to talk about expectancy and more so today than ever. Like something that happens more and more in the new ones and even the historical romances is the discussion of consent. Mm-hmm. These all take place around 1820 in England or wherever, right? These are guys who are kind of like, so you want to do this? Mm-hmm. You want to do this? Are you sure you want to do this? Like three times. And then... <laughs> Then guess what? They do it. And uh, and it's great. But there's always some misunderstanding. And then they have to get over that hump. And then they're happy at the end. Right. So even in 1820, they're using modern concepts of incorporating consent. Entirely. Like, essentially, that's why they're historical. But the other cool thing about the history is the amount of research that these writers are doing. They actually are trying to, you know how like history has both been whitewashed and sort of boy washed. Mm -hmm. Like it's all about men. It's all about white people. There are journals. There are documents. There are stories of powerful, smart doctors and lawyers and, you know, heroes that are women. Mm -hmm. And these authors of these weirdo books are finding those stories so that they can base their characters on them or their characters can know those people Mm -hmm. and be inspired by them because we are different than the women that were 300 years ago. It's just now there's podcasting. Now we (laughs) can talk about it, right? Yeah. Now there's, there's a platform and like, if you think about the strides that have been made in civil rights and um, women's rights and, and just children's rights and all these things in the last hundred years, it's all because of media. It's because of radio. It's because of literacy. It's because of television. It's because of the internet. It's because of telephones. And this is going to sound the dumbest, but I always thought that I got racism (laughs) and right. Because I was like, I'm not a shit bag. I don't, you know, even in when I'm the, the maddest in the world, when I was a child, it was like, you don't call people, racial slurs. You just don't. It's not, I don't care how mad you are. I don't care what's happening. You don't lose your temper and then just start calling Jewish people or black people names. Right. The old Michael Richards. Yeah. Right. Right. You don't snap. Right. I snap and I say super mean things or I do super stupid shit 
but it isn't that. Right. right? It's a separate thing. So I built myself a tiny statue inside my head uh, because I'm the best, right? And so I thought that I sort of got racism, and then the iPhone camera was invented. And I could watch what was happening to friends of mine who were black and brown and gay and trans and all the things. And I, and I would see it online. This is 10 years ago. This is six years ago where I would see it. And then I would say to my friends, did you see this? And they would say, put it away. Yes. Yes. I've lived it. Please do not show me racism at this time. I'm familiar with it. Uh, let's go to lunch. But the, the representation, it's, there's a way for men to know now. What is what happens in women's lives? Like we all are in the water, right? We're in our own fish bowls. I'm like, no, this is how I live my life, slightly defensively, but fine, mm-hmm. you know. And guys are like, well, why wouldn't you just go to that thing? Well, didn't want to be killed. Yeah, yeah. There's more of an ability for people to show their real experiences, for people to show their real life experiences in ways that you <laughs> like wouldn't even consider. Yeah. And it's undeniable. Right. Yeah. Right. Just between us. Just between us. And so, you know, you talk a bit about like media representation, these books maybe showing different sort of representation. And then, you know, the idea now of like own voices in fiction, where it's like, you want to read about indigenous people by indigenous authors. You want to read about black people by black authors. And I think like, is that happening more in romance? Well, I think it's it's the cool thing that always happened in romance because nobody respected it. Interesting. They were like, oh, women are going to write this and we don't have to pay them well. And they're just going to turn this out and other women will buy it using their grocery money. Yeah. There's kind of less gatekeeping because nobody cares who's doing it. Yeah. It's like stand up. (laughs) It's also this thing that I hate where, you know, happens with boy bands where it's like, well, this isn't important because women are interested in it or young women are interested in it Uh or older women are interested in it. God forbid older women have interests. And so like, you know, and then I always find it funny when people are like, oh, women are shopping so much. They have so many high heels. And I was like, do you know how many sneakerhead men I know? Like, When men have an interest, it's suddenly, like, worthy of the cover of GQ. But, like, when women have an interest, it's frivolous. Interesting. It's only in the last five or six years that I've embraced the romance novel thing, where I'm just like, yeah, no, it's something I like to do. Mm -hmm. It stops the voices. Get off my areola, which is a (laughs) Janelle Monae uh, reference. How great is representation, though? Like, when you saw Bridgerton, if you saw Bridgerton, yeah. mm -hmm. The fact that there were some black characters and it was treated a la Hamilton where they were just playing, they were actors playing those parts. I thought it was awesome. I did talk with a friend of mine who likes both romance novels and is black. And she said, you know, they don't mention the fact that he's black except one time. And if you bring it up at all, you better address it. But they didn't. Like at one point, Lady Dansbury, I think, says that The queen, you know, two generations ago, somebody married somebody black and that's why they get to be a duke or something like that. And that felt like a thing that was done in committee. To like what? That they were like, we got to address it, but not too much. 
Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That it feels like it feels like it was it was a group decision that didn't need to be made because at no time is it addressed. For for example, in Hamilton. Yeah, and people do have trouble with that. I think you know it's interesting too with like queer history. Speaking as a queer person, there's a lot of stuff with regard to the Hayes Code with gay and lesbian romance novels where they had to end in death and disaster. You know, whereas like straight romance novels, it's like the ending must be that they get together and they get married or they're together and happy with queer romance novels. Somebody has to die. You have the lesson has to be gayness ends in death. And so that was like, you know, the big censorship thing that went on there. And then sometimes people when stuff is historically rewritten, I've seen queer people be a little bit upset because it eliminates the the reality of what we went through. And then, you know, people reading it who aren't queer or who aren't black for black people in those kind of like Victorian stories will think like, oh, well, they didn't have it that bad. Look at how look at how good it was for them back then. Right. There's both of those things are real. I have never had a problem separating fiction from reality. Right. And I know historical fiction in finger quotes is been I don't know if you've ever read any time travel romance. (laughs) (laughs) Not yet. (laughs) That that was a dumb year. But these women would go back in time and they would always bring tampons. Interesting. The last lesbian romance novel was probably four years ago. Uh, One of my fans is a delight. And she was like, you like romance novels? Read this one. It's based on this real couple. And I was like, do they... And because it's historical romance novel of Mm -hmm. these two women and they were um, settlers. And I was like, are they killed? I can't. I know that that lesbian romances always end in death. Right. Right. And she was like, I am going to spoil it for you just because it's fun all the way up to the end. And they live. And so we did it. And I wish I could remember the name of it. And if somebody wants to know, I will find out. And then I gave it to my mother's in law because my and my husband was raised by lesbians. Mm -hmm. And so. Their first question was, do they live? Right. Because it is it is a valid question. If you want to read a romance novel, you want it to be a romance that is successful. Right. right? <laughs> right. The side benefit of dirty dancing mm-hmm. is keep abortion legal. And I love that that message is in there. Mm-hmm. I love that that message is in there. But they get together. At the end of that damn movie, they better fucking get together. <laughs> I feel the same way. I mean, for me, I'm engaging with content because there is that element of escapism and I won't watch things that are sad. (laughs) Like I won't. I'm just not interested. Sadness is all around me in the real world. I I know what it feels (laughs) like to feel sad. Like, Mm -hmm. And there's so much pushback, I feel like, from people about that. But I feel such relief hearing you talk the same way that like if there's not a happy ending, you're not interested. I am genuinely not interested, <laughs> but I've also interviewed people on in the Dork Forest about horror because it's it's the thing I do not like. I mm-hmm. don't like to be scared. Sometimes I'm scared in real life. I don't like it there either. But I've had people tell me that they have find horror therapeutic and they process trauma. Yes, it's cathartic for me. Yeah, it's cathartic because you're getting the feelings out in a controlled way. There are some romance novels that are super sad in the middle mm-hmm. that I have sobbed. Yeah. I will cry. I will cry, cry, cry. And sometimes I can't cry in real life. Right. And I need a good cry. 
Yeah. And so if I'm reading a book and I'm just like, no, he probably doesn't mean that or she didn't mean that. And, you know, it's I, I sound like a goonie bird, but, you know, I'll just be crying. Right. And then at the end of the book or the end of the night, when I put the book down to read it again tomorrow, there'll be a, a weight off of me. You know, yeah. the physical catharsis of bleeding that energy off. That is true, true for people who like horror and for people who like, I think people who like sort of the justification, you know, they're like, oh, other people have, we all feel so alone sometimes. I was just thinking a lot about like my love of succession and how that is a tragedy, that show. You know, it's funny, my partner and I got into a thing because they. I was like, it's a comedy. Like it's a dark black comedy. And my partner was like, it is not funny to me at all. It is a tragedy. And I was like, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's like funny. And they were like, not to me, but I have like a dysfunctional family. So I like it because I obviously I'm not like a, you know, the Murdochs who have to, you know, deal with who's going to be next in line to be CEO. But my family is so dysfunctional that I'm like, feel like I'm getting it out by watching Succession. Whereas like, that is a bleak show. There are no happy endings there. Everyone is a bad person. <laughs> and same for horror. Right. Yeah. I watched the first Godfather movie for the first time, probably five or six years ago. And my brothers have loved it their entire lives. Every male comic in the whole wide world, they relate. They just, what? They're mm-hmm. none of them are Fredo. Whatever. <laughs> but so I watched it. And at the end of it, I was like, well, I'm not watching the second, this family. This isn't going to work out. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Nope. I don't care. And the thing is, is things are well done, right? There is beautiful prose that is about bad life decisions and people being Mm -hmm. horrible to each other. There's beautifully filmed movies and television that are sad sack, evil, you know, just sort of, or like murder porn. My Mm. murder porn has to, the good guys have to win at the end. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So everyone else is watching Squid Games. I'm watching Mortal Kombat. (laughs) <laughs> the new Mortal Kombat is what I want to watch. And they're both super murdery and super gross. But uh, Mortal Kombat, guess who's going to win? Raiden. That's right. Right. Luke Kang. It's all coming together. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to... Uh, spoiler alert for people who haven't seen the latest James Bond, but I took a whole class on James Bond in college. And, you know, for me, James Bond is like, is this like escapism? He always wins. He's in charge. You know, like... It's fun. It's thrilling. He went, you know, and then this last James Bond, he dies at the end. And I became enraged. I started screaming. I was very angry. <laughs> I'm surprised no one has spoiled this for me. Yeah, I uh, yeah. I apologize, but he fucking died. Okay. And I was lost my mind. I was like, I do not come here to see James Bond lose. I do not nope. come here for him to not only die sad, but for him to die at all. I was like, yeah, I was yeah, yeah. furious. And I was like, mm-hmm. I, there are plenty of other movies where I would go in knowing that that's a possibility. I did not come yep. into James Bond for that. And it was so right. funny because at the theater, when the movie started, it was like electric. Everyone was like clapping and shouting. And then at the end, the applause was like this. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's no reason for that. I wonder if media nowadays thinks that to be edgy, they have to do that. Well, there was all this thing of like, but it makes sense for his journey because his whole thing was he couldn't connect to people at the beginning. But then at the end, he he learned how to connect and then he had to die. <laughs> and yeah. I'm like, I don't, 
like fuck you. Yeah. I don't want to, you know. Fuck you with a yeah, with a horseshoe. It's like with Marvel. <laughs> it's like with Marvel too, right? The end of Infinity War is like fully devastating. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, anyway, bye. And you're like, no, this is not (laughs) how Marvel movies end. Absolutely not. But I think they feel like they want to elevate it to prestige. So in order to be prestige, they can't, you know, wrap it up in this nice way. I will say this about comic books, because I read a lot of comic books as well, is there is something that happens when a new author takes over a book that sometimes happens. It doesn't happen every time. But the writer will want to kill the character. Mm-hmm. the first person to kill Captain America. Right. right. But if you look back on it, like, remember in the first Batman movie where the Joker dies? I remember everyone I know going, why would you kill with a body the best Batman villain? Right, in right. In the whole wide world. That doesn't make any sense. Wow, justice for Mr. Freeze. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> and now I, my final question is, would you like to play a game show? Yes. yes <laughs> okay, great. So the game show is called Hypotheticals. You and Gabby are my contestants. I'm going to give you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask any clarifying questions you may have, and then you tell me what you would do in that situation, and then I just decide if I like your answer. <laughs> <laughs> I love the stakes on this. Yup, yup, yup. Okay, amazing. So our first game is America's favorite game show, Would You Stay With This Cheater? There is a new TikTok trend where people kiss their siblings in front of their parents to get a reaction. Your partner of three years participates in this trend without warning you first and makes out with their sister for around 30 seconds as their parents scream in horror. Would you stay with this cheater? I wouldn't stay in that room. (laughs) (laughs) I have five siblings and a healthy terror of incest. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely not. That is a horrendous no. And anyone who follows a TikTok trend that is hurtful in any way is a monster. (laughs) Okay, so even though they go super viral and get a lot of money from it. That actually makes it worse. Yeah. I don't even like when people are like slightly mean to their dogs as TikTok trends. Like, no, absolutely not. (laughs) TikTok makes you feral. And I am scared of it now. I used to be on it all the time. I haven't been on it in a month because I think it makes people truly feral. All right. So a a, a clear consensus, you can't make out with your siblings. (laughs) Yeah. You know what? Me and Jackie are going to draw the line at making out with your siblings. There you go. It's over. (laughs) Okay, our next game. Are you a terrible parent? Your child, 16, really wants to get a motorcycle, but you are worried because they're very dangerous. As a compromise, you let them get their license and buy them a used one with the condition that you must be on the back of it whenever they drive somewhere. (laughs) This incentivizes them to barely ride it since it is way less cool to show up on a bike with your parent on the back. Are you a terrible parent? You both fall off twice with minor injuries before they lose interest. Okay. I have 15 (laughs) nieces and nephews. The oldest one, I think, is 45 years old. Anyway, I traditionally have said to absolutely every one of them, you can do whatever you want when you're 18. As an adult, it's scary being around kids. And so if you could wait for drugs and sex until you're in college, that'd be great. And then never tell me about it. That would also be great. (laughs) There's no motorcycles. You buy your own fucking motorcycle. 
I am so anti-motorcycle for some, I love, for someone who grew up around so many bikers in Alcoholics Anonymous, I must say that I am very anti-motorcycle. I've had a lot of friends get in accidents. I dated a guy whose dad died on a motorcycle, like not for me. So I think it would be a hard, I feel like I'm a terrible parent, mostly because if I can't hold the boundary of absolutely no motorcycle, then what am I even doing? It's very, very, very dangerous. It's super dangerous. And, but here's the thing. I love motorcycles. I would love a moped. My husband is like, wait, you might've missed the window, but I love motorcycles and I get it. And if you are a safe motorcycle driver, it's still very dangerous. But you, if you're an adult and you want to do that, I'm okay with it, but not at 16. I don't know a 16 year old in the world who should be given a knife to play mumbly peg. So, uh, how about no? <laughs> and I'm not a bad parent. I think I'm a concerned adult. Yeah. I'm part of the village helping you live to be 18. Agreed. So you were a bad parent for even allowing them. Yes. But it is a somewhat funny visual to see someone pull up <laughs> to a party on their motorcycle and then their parent their gets mom. off the back. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, generally, I am in agreement of if your child wants to do something and then you say, okay, I'll do it too. Because nothing has made me not want to do things more than my parents also wanting to do it. Right. <laughs> like my dad just got a tattoo and I'm like, well, I guess tattoos aren't cool anymore. Like it's truly <laughs> so, you know. Uh, Lori Kilbarton uh, talks about how she wants to watch porn with her son just to discourage his. That, exactly. <laughs> that was a hypothetical from a couple years ago. <laughs> yep, exactly. Nice. <laughs> okay, our final game. Is this a date? You are part of a weekly trivia group with six members. One night, one of the members, a friend of a friend, asks if you would like to join a new trivia group, which meets a different day at a different bar. You say yes, but when you show up, you find out that the team is just you and that one other person. Ah! They, <laughs> they explain that they think you are the smartest person they've ever met, so they didn't need to ask anyone else to join. Is this a date? I marry this person. I immediately <laughs> yeah, marry yeah, this that, person. That is totally a date. <laughs> yeah, I immediately, I, we get married in Vegas the next day. <laughs> it's a it's good true. strategy for you. I'm a Gemini. I want to be told I'm the smartest person always. <laughs> my partner right now, my partner right now believes I have a genius IQ and wants me to get tested. That's why you're together. <laughs> One of the nicest things they've ever said. And I keep saying, every time they say it, I'm like, are you fucking with me? And they're like, no, I genuinely think you have a genius IQ. And I'm like, oh, what do they think of your um, social skills? Oh, not good. Are you kidding? Yeah, there's and you're like, I don't care. You yeah, think I'm smart. Thank you so much. Yeah, I don't have time and for the rest. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a whole about efficiency. <laughs> I watch Jeopardy like almost every day. And I and they one time they were sitting with me and then they were like getting up to do something else. And I was like, no, 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 no. You have to stay. I, I don't I can't watch it alone. I need someone here to witness me getting everything right. Oh, <laughs> it's, it's hilarious because I was working on a bit about how I can't. Nobody needs a witness for everything. Like I. Yeah, there's things that I do that I, I want my husband. No part of it. No. Right. Take a lap. <laughs> but yeah, does it really happen if nobody's watching how smart you are. I need Mal there to see how good I am. And so I feel like this trivia person gets me. And I think it's a date and I love them. They do. Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, they just wanted to win trivia and they have no romantic interest <gasps> in you. Boom! I would be romantically interested. If I thought someone was the smartest person, I would be romantically interested in them. There's a lot of ugly men I've dated who I just felt were really smart and talented. <laughs> uh, 
Interesting. Tina Fey once said, talent is not sexually transmitted, just so you know. Oh, believe me, uh, I know. It was a lot of <laughs> cis men really got in there on the on last minute because I felt they were talented. <laughs> this was so wonderful. Thank you for joining us. Where can people follow you and see you tour? Know in your hearts that I have a new album and special out and you should buy it so it's I stay on the top of the charts. But if you don't have any money, just stream it. Watch it for free on YouTube. If you go to JackieCation.com, everything is just Jackie Cation, right? So it's at Jackie Cation. The album is called Staycation, but it's my last name, K-A-S-H-I-A-N. Love it. And I have five albums, so they're all available free streaming, except on Spotify. I decided I wanted more than four cents a spin, so they've taken them all down. So go to Pandora or Amazon or YouTube and look for all my albums. Feel free to buy my stuff. It's at JackieCation.com. Thank you so much. Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about family loyalty and the Cuomo brothers. Us. It's time for Topics! X, 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 baby! Baby! Oh, wow. Guess who's joining us for this segment? Is Melissa. <laughs> <laughs> I was letting them guess. <laughs> uh, so- what if it was Anthony Cuomo? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> so, I, I don't know if you've all been following this, this New York-centric news in a way, but... Basically, Andrew Cuomo had to step down, resigned from being governor of New York because of loads and loads of sexual harassment claims. And his brother, Chris Cuomo, who is a CNN news anchor, also got fired because he was heavily involved in trying to cover up his brother's illegal activity. Mm. And it raises this question of, you know, Chris Cuomo had this like really prestigious career that was separate from his family's life and politics in a way. And he built this like, you know, this journalism career and then kind of risked it all to like help out his older brother. Mm-hmm. Um, I also said Anthony Cuomo and you're right. It's absolutely Andrew Cuomo. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking, I was like, what? <laughs> I was just like, wow, what a thrill. I wasn't the one who got the name wrong for once. <laughs> I'm plugged in and ready to go, guys. <laughs> yeah, he. what did he do? He looked up stuff about the accusers. He was just like involved in like more involved than he let on. And he was coaching his brother on what to say and what not to say. <sighs> okay. This is a tough one because I am very close to my sister and I don't know, man. Like, I mean, obviously, I don't think I would do this, but it is tough. I don't like any of the men in my family. (laughs) That's not true. That's not true. But I do have family members who screw up. I think of late, I've just been letting it go. Like if my, somebody posts something stupid, I just, I'm just not, I don't get involved. And I used to, I would, like, I'd be like, Hey, take that down. But now I'm just like, this is not my problem. So I don't know if there's a possibility that Chris Cuomo could have been like, this is not my problem. Definitely. I mm-hmm. mean, like he he could have easily recused himself from the whole situation. But instead, he like gave up his career. He kind of risked his career. Yeah. And like, I obviously hoping it wouldn't come out what he was doing. I mean, I think there was like probably he was like, this will be fine. 
Do you think that if he had just done nothing and not commented on it, people still would have been mad? People were mad. Initially, when he, like on the news, when he said he wouldn't be the one that was reporting on it, people were mad because they were saying, well, you were the one that brought him on the show, which I, I admit, like I I fell for the charm of both of them always mm-hmm. being together on Chris's show. And people were mad. We're like, no, you are the one that kind of introduced him to everyone across America. Right. You should be reporting on this. Do you think he knew what the brother was up to? I think so at that point. Because it's hard because, like, I, I hate the implication that you're responsible for what your family does and that you have to comment on it. But that's not what happened. He went out of his way no, of course, to of help course. him mm-hmm. of course. with the cover-up. Yes. So uh, if he had just said nothing, he would have also probably gotten flack. But then he decided to <laughs> let's let's do the worst possible thing. Mm-hmm. Well, he implicated himself. Exactly. He probably would have had, you know, some even if he had had just backlash from I'm not going to report on it. But what he did got him fired. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think it's this really interesting thing of like we're often told like family first, like, Mm -hmm. and we see this, we see this with like abusers with their families protecting the Mm -hmm. abusers and like, well, it's my son, it's my brother. I have to do what I've got to do. But then they end up blowing up their own lives too. Yeah. It's like the Gabby Petito case and the parents covering for this uh, Brian Laundrie who killed her. And it's like, I understand that it's your son, but this person needs help. Sometimes like something they do something horrible and the best thing for them is something that makes them have to get help or change or something. Or like, you know, like even in with the school shooting in um, Michigan, the parents covering for the son, like the son was literally crying out for help, like literally saying the words help me. And the and the parents were like, go back to school. Here's like, a gun. Yeah. Like, I think there's this thing where you you go, well, my kid is my priority and I have to put them first. And it's like putting them first looks like getting them help. You know what I mean? Or like putting them, letting them have the consequences of their actions. Believe it or not, I'm very argumentative and with my family, especially when I know I'm right about something and I am always calling them out on yeah. things that aren't right. So I'm loyal as long as you're doing the right thing. If you're doing the wrong thing, I'm calling you out. Letting them handle the consequences of their actions is sometimes the best thing for them. Mm -hmm. My sister had some legal troubles and my parents chose to help her. And in some ways, I wonder if letting her struggle with that actually would have been a positive experience. And so there's a lot of stuff in terms of like, you can call it even what the Cuomo's did. You can call it enabling. It's enabling. It's saying like, I'm going to help you with your bad behavior. I'm going to let you get off scot-free. I'm going to allow you to, you know, because I love you. But sometimes love isn't enabling. Sometimes love is letting the person deal with the consequences, Mm -hmm. actually. I would argue that Andrew Cuomo should not have let his brother help him. That's the thing. Like, I think he should have been like, recuse yourself from this. But he also didn't think he did anything wrong. That's the thing is that he doesn't think he did anything wrong. So he thought his brother was helping the right side. Right. Yes. And that's also the thing with a lot of times the people that do need this help are people who don't think they did anything wrong (laughs) and have a victim complex and think that they are the victim always and they need you to help them always. I mean, it's like for my own safety and my own mental health in my own career, like I'm estranged from a brother of mine. That to me says something about my values and my 
opinion and my, you know, like I think like it's hard and being estranged from family members and putting up boundaries and being uh, like uh, aware of the dysfunction of your family and removing yourself is not easy. The average person would be like, I would help my sibling bury a body. I think. I would need the context of what happened. Uh, yeah, I was going right. to say, it yeah. depends on who it was, but. And yeah. why they did it. Yeah. yeah. But I, I sometimes wonder, it's like if somebody showed up, like if your sister showed up, Melissa, and was like, I just hit somebody in a hit and run and I left the scene. What do I do? Do you know what I mean? Like, what do you like? Do you make them hold them accountable? We do you go try back. To, you go back, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's also situations where like, I wonder like if somebody hurt, Specifically, let's say some if somebody hurt my sister in a in either like, you know, in a very physical way mm-hmm. and the justice system wasn't doing anything, would I go full vigilante? Like 40% of me is like, yeah, <laughs> like 40% of me is like, I think I would go after that. Per- like, I don't know, you know, like I don't have that experience. So I think about like families where their, their child was murdered or something and the the person is you know they're like going like should they go to life in prison should they get the death penalty and the family really wants the death penalty i'm anti-death penalty i'm also like i don't know how i'd feel in that situation right it's hard if you've never experienced it to know like like if you've never experienced a family member that you love doing something terrible i think i've had a lot of experience being like removing myself but I don't know. And sometimes I don't know if like what's my business and what isn't my business. Mm-hmm. I also think it's probably really easy to believe that they didn't do anything wrong. Right. To let yourself not look at the actual evidence and instead be like, oh, this is, you know, like, I wonder if Chris Cuomo thinks his brother did anything wrong. Like, I, I would hope so. <laughs> I feel like he does. And that was makes know, it right? worse. Yeah, that makes it much yeah. worse. I think I have the thing where I would believe anyone in my family had done anything. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't think I have anybody on a pedestal. I think I would, it wouldn't be like, no, no, they're innocent. I would be like, they're probably guilty. It's hard. Yeah. But I, yeah, I, that whole thing is just like so mind blowing because it's, you know, Chris Cuomo has now like ruined his life. Mm-hmm. Melissa, when you correct people in your family, what are you talking about? Or when you tell people that they're doing something wrong or you don't want to like, enable let's say it's nothing that's like against the law but if I see them spreading some misinformation about something or just treating someone wrong or just not doing things that that stands up to like my morals then I'll just go and say hey like why are you doing this and then calling them in about the situation I think I struggle a little bit with certain things where I I and nothing like wild, but like certain things that I, I disagree about where like I will push back a bit. But like when I I won't like push all the way, <laughs> Do you know, like it's it's because sometimes it's like, well, I'm not going to change their mind about this or I'm not going to. You know what I mean? I think if it was an action versus mm-hmm. an opinion, then I would stand up more. I hope. But it's one of those things where it's like, ooh, I hope I would be like if my dad was like, yeah, I just killed somebody don't tell, (laughs) you know, like it's such a horrible position to be in. Like you don't really know how you're going to act until it happens. But I, I hope that I would act correctly. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. It's less opinions in my family because I do push, but it's like behaviors. It's like behaviors that I, I will get involved with, but I just like, I have experience where their behaviors have been illegal and it's like, like, I don't know, like, 
we, Mal and I were talking about like, if my dad relapsed, would I be obligated to tell my mom if I knew? And I was like, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. So we have not, it's a hypothetical that Mal and I have talked about that. Like, I don't know what the answer is. Mal says, yes. Part of me is like, at this point, I'm an adult and he's an adult and like, it's none of my business. But I don't know the answer to that question. I, this is like, to me, sort of unanswerable topic, but I have no idea. Yeah. I think it just depends on the the situation. The context matters yeah. so much. If someone had been harassing women in their lives, then I will definitely not Absolutely. stand by yeah. No way. It's different between hurting other people and hurting yourself. Families what? are wild. <laughs> But I will say, I'm, I'm glad Chris Cuomo got fired. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> I was very charmed by him, and he did bring some happiness to me during the pandemic, but now it's just all tarnished. Yeah. When people were into Andrew and him, and people were like, I'm Cuomo sexual or whatever, anytime, I'm like broken, where anytime some a bunch of women like a male celebrity, I'm always like, he's the he's got to be evil. Mm. But is that right. broken, or is that me being right? What did we rate this episode? I rate it a uh, 16 out of 15 romance novels set in the 1820s. <laughs> I will rate it 27 out of 23 going after what you want after experiencing extreme trauma. <laughs> I'll rate it 42 out of 33 making out with your sibling for a viral TikTok. No! Yes! Yes! Canceled. <laughs> Thank you, Jackie Cation, for being our guest. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Produced by Melissa D. Mons. Edited by Coco Lorenz. Executive produced by Brett Brougham, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. And check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash foreverdogteam or on our channel, youtube.com slash show. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also at She Is Not Melissa, at Allison Raskin, and at Gabby Road on Instagram. Bye! Forever! Dog! <laughs>